0: You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season seven, episode eight. When it comes to spiritual formation, our individual temperament plays a large role in how we connect to God, one another, and the world around us. There's not a one size fits all for how we approach the spiritual life. In fact, The same systems that bring us clarity and definition can also leave us frustrated or feeling confined to search for God in a manner contrary to our natural inclinations. Best-selling author and speaker Gary Thomas insists that it's better to discover the path God designed you to take, a path marked by growth and fulfillment based on your unique temperament. In this conversation recorded in 2019, Gary and I discuss his nine sacred pathways where he strips away the frustration of a one-size-fits-all spirituality and guides you toward a style of relating to God that frees you to be you. For the artist of the creative, understanding our unique makeup and how we most easily connect with God enables us to live and create from a deeper authenticity. Instead of fostering a compulsion to imitate or conform to an exterior, homogenized form of faith, discovering the beauty of God's unique path for our lives opens the way for greater possibility in our creative work. Once you've listened to today's episode, I'd love to keep the conversation going. Patrons of the podcast will be discussing our response to sacred pathways in our creative collective. You can join The Creative Collective by following the link in the show notes of this episode or by visiting patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is my conversation with best-selling author Gary Thomas on Sacred Pathways. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I'm looking forward to talking with you today.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, I just connected with your book, Sacred Pathways, recently, but I hear that you actually wrote the book in 1996. Is that correct? That is. Yes. And that was that was your second book of how many have you written now?
1: I don't count anymore. I think I've passed 20, not much past 20. Uh, and then it's, it's difficult to count books after a while because they'll do a gift edition and Things like that that I don't really necessarily count as a book, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. But Sacred Pathways was it. It was interesting. I I'd done my first book on the Christian classics, and, and my thought was before I give the world any of my own stuff, I want to just get a good grip on what the Christian classics last two thousand years, different traditions, different ages, what they held in common. You know, in, in issues of systematic theology. They could be so diverse. But when it came to how do we relate to God, it was amazing how a medieval nun could sound like an 18th century Anglican. And so that was that. And then sacred pathways came out of that, identifying nine different ways, I call them the pathways, that people best connected to God. Prior to that, I'd gone to a college situation where you taught people to have a quiet time. You know, and, and there's steps, and here's a guide, and, and here's how you do it. And it was sort of this one-size-fits-all spirituality. It would be sort of like asking everybody to wear the same shirt in a church. You know, it, I, I don't know that spirituality is any better than clothes. And so people were having a, a difficult time connecting with God, not, I thought, because of their relationship or desire for God. But they were put on a pathway that didn't fit who God made them to be. And so, the Pathways was just sort of discovering what we know from Scripture and church history and the Christian classics about how people, in very different ways, relate to God.
0: Well, in the book, you go through nine different spiritual temperaments. One would be the naturalist, who maybe would find God in nature as their primary disposition, and then the sensate, who is more of uh, the five senses, uh, encountering God through the senses traditionalists of course who would be more inclined to ritual and liturgy and the ascetics who those are the old desert fathers we read about you yes. know the people who love solitude and silence and then activists which would remind me of someone like Dorothy Day the Catholic worker from in the 1960s yes. yeah. um, caregivers enthusiasts contemplatives intellectuals and that's I believe that's all of them correct so tell me what led you to begin to see these different temperaments within people. I don't want to get too mystical here, especially because mm-hmm. a lot of
1: you listeners might not know me. But most of the time when I'm writing a book, I feel like an architect. What if I put this room here? What if I put the doorway here and I could put a closet here? This book, I felt more like an archaeologist. Mm. If you looked at the book proposal and what came out of it, vastly different. And I'm just so grateful to an editor who saw it, who asked me to go deeper and, and and to be bolder. And so, they just sort of unfolded before me. It was how to deepen your experience with God, but then I began to notice these nine different ways. And some were types from Scripture. Some were like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila pointed me toward the contemplatives. Um, I got a couple from Thomas Akempis' book, and then there were some more – there's a big school of spiritual direction in the early – late 19th century, early 20th century in Europe. And so just putting these together, just seeing different ways that people connected with God and, and putting labels. And then I didn't know there were nine when I started. It was just trying to find a place for everyone. And what I'm thrilled about you, – you mentioned the book's been out for over 20 years – I think the nine labels hold. I think you can be more than one. I'm not trying to take people from a quiet time box and put them into a contemplative box or an intellectual box. I think some people exhibit three or four. Some might be open to all nine, but they have a couple favorite ones. But as far as how we understand the way we connect with God, I think the nine are pretty exhaustive. A lot of pastors have gone through this and speakers. A couple people have written books based on, largely on sacred pathways. And just about everywhere they go, I can fit them into one of the nine. But I really do look at that more as being the archaeologist who uncovered it rather than the architect who designed it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I found each of them to be so helpful, even in the work that we're doing in our community. But what drew me so much to it is because in our present day, There seems to be so much division across the board, so much tribalism in the negative sense of what tribalism would be. And so much is defined, whether it's by political affiliations or it's defined by this particular belief or this particular belief or this way of encountering God or this way of encountering God. And so, when I saw someone who had identified so many of these different approaches and really brought validity to so many of them, it was a breath of fresh air for me. And I think that what you're pointing out is valuable for us to learn how to not only encounter God in new ways, but also to encounter one another in new ways and yes. to learn that perhaps there's a there's a difference between sameness and unity. The The two things I've heard most often—
1: when people or small groups go through this, the first is freedom. A lot of people just feel a sense of freedom. Oh, God made me to be this way. It's okay that I relate to God differently than the pastor that preaches or my spouse. I I recognize that we're all passionate about God, but we don't connect with God in necessarily the same way. And so just the freedom people feel like, oh, it's okay, because you can really admire somebody, and not be wired the same way spiritually. The second one, I, I would say, is what you mentioned with with the groups. Just appreciation for those different approaches with small groups. They said, "Oh, that's why he's always trying to turn our church into this social cause or this, you know, because he, he he's the activist." Or that's why that one always wants to have the three hour, forget any teaching, just have the worship conferences all night. Or that's <laughs> why that one's always trying to bring liturgy in. Or and so it helps them appreciate each other rather than judge each other it's like okay now i get why you are the way you are it's established in scripture it's established in history and though i'm never going to be that way at least i can appreciate that mm-hmm. so th- th- those two things i think freedom for individuals and uh, a broader respect within community have been the two biggest movements i've seen when groups or individuals have gone through sacred pathways
0: mm-hmm well Tell me your elevator pitch about the naturalist, because when I think of the naturalist, I immediately think of someone like John Muir, you know, who goes out into the wilderness and contemplates God all day. Yeah. Uh, tell me your elevator pitch about the naturalist.
1: It's not unfair. I was thinking of this yesterday. I was out on a run in a park, and what you could call it is a nature bath, Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I really have a bent toward the naturalist, where when you're surrounded by all that God has made, the the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's what it's like for a naturalist. When they're surrounded by what God has made, who God is is revealed most closely to them. So for them, getting up in a dark room and closing their eyes— Maybe one of the worst ways to connect with God. It's when they're outside and they might see – I'm not going to see it in Houston. I'd see it where I grew up in Seattle – the mountains that speak of His grandeur. And then the, the tiny things you go on in the sand and you see all of these numberless parts of sand. Or mountain climbers will talk about how they'll climb a mountain and there'll be this flower that nobody else will ever see. They might be the only one, but God created it up there. I mean, God's love of beauty for the sake of beauty, it just, it, it reveals to them that the peace some people feel by a river. It's just nature, because it's created by God, screams the existence, the, the qualities, the presence, the attributes of God. And naturalists are just really attuned to to that, that it is, as one monk said,
0: the best book they'll ever read is going outside and sitting in the woods. And then your second one is the Sensate, and this would, of course, remind me of maybe some of the Catholic services where the incense is such a prevalent part of the smells and then the sights and a very sensory experience of God, right?
1: I'd say even more than Roman Catholic, I'd say Eastern Orthodox
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you're you're touching things, you're kissing things, you you have the same incense. It's usually very visual. Uh, but but it's that. It's your five senses, what you taste, what you see, and hear. And the reality is, although somebody like me who's a teacher doesn't like this, somebody's brain is simply more active during singing of songs than they are when a talking head is speaking. Mm-hmm. It's like a computer, more of your brain is firing There's more input And so some people literally feel more alive When they're touching, when they're smelling When they're seeing, tasting with the Eucharist Or communion and all of that And so, yeah, it's it's learning how to bring that in uh, One pastor did a series On Jesus is the Bread of Life He had people baking bread As they walked in, people smelled it And it was a sermon they'll never forget and then that It's not because of a cute story He just brought their senses into play and they've shown neurologically that when you s- smell, is connected with memory. Mm. And so, when you join teaching with a particular smell, you walk into a church, you remember the smell, it can bring into your neurological consciousness prior teachings and prior times that God has challenged you. So, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing the way that God has made the brain.
0: Yeah, I love that, especially… Coming from the creative and coming uh, from the perspective of an artist, um, I often say that art is incarnational. It's taking yes. these intangible ideas and fleshing them out in physical form. So I really relate to that one as well.
1: I think when you see a great work of art, and I'm saying it could be painting, it can be music, it can be a movie, it can be a novel. What strikes me, I don't know, Stephen, if, if this is views, I just want to be a better person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> There's something about great art to me, and I'm not trying to reduce art to a utilitarian uh, effect. I think beauty for beauty's sake is is worthy, but there are some things about some arts, it's just, I feel cleansed. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've touched something transcendent, and I think that's the sensei within mm-hmm. me.
0: And so, interesting, moving from the sensate, you go to the traditionalist, which in some ways, (laughs) you could see that as another part of the spectrum, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, like the the traditionalist would be opposite from the enthusiast. Gotcha. Uh, the, the, The traditionalist loves it when rituals that the church has done for 2000 is meaningful for them. The routine is deep. It's not boring. It's not lifeless. It's because they've prayed this way. They like. To, they want to pray in the same spot. They want to pray some of the same prayers. They like to use symbols, for instance, and they will organize their life around that. And so, it, at a typical church service, and the offerings passed at 1034, they might even look at their watch and say, all's well with the world, right? We're <laughs> Whereas the enthusiasts who are open to God moving in ways he's never moved before are praying that God will move in such a new way, they won't even get to the offering. Everything will be blown to bits (laughs) because they're more about mystery. And so, you could see how the difference is that what comforts the traditionalists can bore the enthusiasts silly, but what excites the enthusiasts terrifies the traditionalists. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think that drawing those distinctions is one of the beautiful things and one of the important things that I think your book – can offer to people is learning how to value and appreciate these differences and and the places where we're the same and where we're different. But moving on, so we can get through all of these, the ascetics, who I mentioned would probably be like the Desert Fathers. Tell me some about what the ascetic would enjoy.
1: Oh well, think monk or nun. My, my, my publisher hated that word because I said, Gary, most people aren't going to know it. But it's it's getting away, getting alone, and sort of shutting out the world. And here's where it's so different. We talked about the sensate, where the world draws them to God. For the ascetic, the world interrupts their focus on God. There tend to be non-sensory. An ascetic's room, i tell you this, an ascetic would never have a clock that ticks. All right. They they don't want things that will distract them because for them it's an interior world. I you know Teresa of Avila would talk about almost the world as the the assaulter of getting into God's presence and those interior joys that that can't even be described. And, And so for the ascetic they just want to sit before the Lord. They don't want to be distracted. Often they tend to be very strict. I see that with Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, both, you know, to enjoy contemplative prayers, they describe it. You've got to completely reject the pleasures of the world, mm. the world's pleasures. Whereas the taste of bread or wine could make the senseate worshipful. They're a threat to the ascetic that it might draw their heart away from God toward those quote unquote earthly things. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but you know what? If we'll let them be alone. They reach some heights that Teresa talks about and some insights that, that we will lose in any other tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, what's funny is, is so far, I identify with some part of each of these yeah. <laughs> that you've mentioned. And that part of the, the solitude and the aesthetic, I think, is also such an important part of the creative process. And an important part of the artist's life is so much... The solitude and and the discipline, these things really help to facilitate works of creativity, you know?
1: Well, what I'd say, the longer somebody's been earnestly pursuing God, the more open I think they are to all nine temperaments. Mm -hmm. I think once you start to open your heart up to God, he's able to reveal himself to you in richer and deeper ways. So I'm really not trying to put people back in boxes. What I say may, about to say may lose your listeners, and I hope I don't, it's a little Mm -hmm. dangerous. But a couple, a married couple that's been making love for decades can get each other ready and touch each other in ways that a newlywed couple won't because they have decades Mm -hmm. of enjoying each other. And they've just learned this language, and you're open to each other's presence, and that makes you open to each other's pleasures. I think the same way with God is that once you find the way that most directly reveals him to you— he, he tends to broaden the horizons. Okay, you've seen this side of me, but here's this and here's that. You see all nine, I believe, in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think you see five or six in King David. But I think for new beginners, it's great to focus on one or two. You, you learn those basic things, and then you can experiment. But it's always good to know how you can be spiritually fed.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... The next one that I see a lot of these days is The Activist. And, you know, I was listening to a podcast with the founder of Tom's Shoes. And he was talking about how when they first started, it was unheard of to have a mission attached to a business. Whereas now it's like, if you don't have a mission attached to your business, it's likely not to, to succeed in some realms, you know? Right. And so, I mentioned Dorothy Day earlier, but this tendency toward activism. Tell me about how someone encounters God like that.
1: Certainly, it's more accentuated now than when I wrote the book 20 years ago. Uh, for the activist, church is sort of like a pep rally and a recruiting event. It's almost an interruption. Okay, we've got to get together. Remember why we're here, but I need to get some names on a petition or we're going to go out into the things or we're going to inform people of this injustice because for them, God is most real when they're fighting his battles. Mm -hmm. Now, all of us are called to fight certain battles at certain times. We all should stand up against injustice. Here's where you know it's a pathway. For some believers, and, and I've seen this, they know they have to speak up and then they need to go lick their wounds, and God will build them back up. Mm-hmm. For an activist, it's not going away to recovery. That That's what gets them most excited. That's the peak of their faith. It doesn't deplete them. It fills them. And for an activist, having to do a prayer and study time might be, okay, I know I need to do that, so I'm going to do it. But they don't feel like their day is complete if there isn't the activist element. Whereas for an intellectual that we'll get into or the contemplative, they're meeting with God when they're alone with God. They'll do the activism, but it's not feeding them. Mm -hmm. And that's the real difference. A a pathway is what feeds you spiritually. It's not something you recover from. It's something that nurtures you in
0: the faith. Mm -hmm. And so our next one then would be the caregivers.
1: You would think the caregiver is the opposite of the activist in one sense. The caregiver wants to deal with people one-on-one. They love God by loving others in need. Now, it could be not just sitting by somebody that's six. It could be an EMT, I think a first responder in one sense. It could be some principals that feel like being in a school is a setting where they care. Their, their students are their family. But here's where I try to get both temperaments to understand each other. The activists are trying to deal with the systemic evil. We need to change the structures that make life unfair and unjust. The caregivers are saying, yeah, go ahead. You go do that. We want to deal with the people who are being victimized, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're not going to deal with the food stamp program. We're going to get food into their hands. You can see how God needs both. He needs people in the church that are crying out against the systemic injustice. He needs people who are ministering to the individual victim. So, I'm saying, don't try to turn caregivers into activists. Don't tell activists that they're not doing their job because they're not caregivers. Say, God creates different people with different roles. No one person can possibly reflect the brilliance of God, the expanse of God, the way that God addresses us and is reclaiming us. So, we need the caregivers who deal with people one-on-one. We need the
0: activists who deal with the systemic problems. So tell me about the enthusiast. Yeah.
1: Enthusiasts are marked by two things. They love the mystery. They tend to be the charismatic people. Whereas the traditionalists are moved. I've always related to God this way. This is how God moves. These are the prayers that have worked for me. The enthusiast says, Lord, show me something today I've never seen before. Let me meet somebody I didn't know I was going to meet. They need that sense of expectancy. They, they want the power of the Spirit to surprise them. Uh, they don't want meetings to be the same. They like change for the sake of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they tend to be more communal because it's usually easier to experience that
0: with a group of other people. And then tell me about the contemplative.
1: Well, To be fair, in Christian history, contemplation is an event. It's not a label. It's not a person. It's something that comes and goes. And I'm not really historically fair with the way I use it, but it was a helpful label. The way I'm using it is it's really almost a romantic view of the faith. I want to sit here and hold hands with my Heavenly Father. I want to enjoy Him. I want to adore Him. Teresa of Avila in her autobiography would just talk vividly of the heavenly pleasures when she was able to turn off her mind. She wasn't trying to learn something new. That's the intellectual will get into. She wasn't trying to be convicted. She wanted to experience God, enjoy God, hold hands with God, and be beloved of God. She wanted to spend time with God. It's not what she was doing like the activist. It's not what she was experiencing like the sensate. It's not where she was like the naturalist. It really is just that romantic, let's hold hands, let's enjoy God, let's spend time. It's a more sophisticated pathway, if I could put it that way. It takes a little bit of training and reading to get there, Mm -hmm. but it's very powerful for those that experience it.
0: And I'm looking forward to talking about this next one, which is the intellectuals. And one of the reasons I'm excited to bring this up is because I've spent a lot of time in charismatic circles, and I've spent a lot of time in university circles. And what's interesting to me is that sometimes the folks in the charismatic circles can be very skeptical of any kind of intellectualism, as it's often called, but then at the same time, the intellectual circles are very skeptical of spiritual encounter that can't be identified with reason or put into words or fit neatly into a theological box. And so, tell me about the intellectual.
1: The danger of the label I use intellectual is that it makes people think you've got to be high IQ, and that's that's not it. I tend to go toward intellectual, Um, so you don't have to be high IQ. I think conceptual might be a better label it's just it's just not as clear what it means is when you understand something new about god that opens up your heart Mm -hmm. you could have an hour of romantic emotional jesus is my boyfriend kind of worship and for the intellectual they're in the back saying can you give me some data Mm -hmm. i mean i I can't even conceive of being drawn explain to me what it means that he's all knowing or all powerful or tell me something new and it's that understand it's like Oh, he he is incredible. And it's, it's because of the brilliance and the immensity and the beauty of God that the intellectual temperament is so powerful. There's always something new to discover about him. And you could say, oh, I mean, it's like if somebody looks at this great masterpiece in painting and they know painting, look at the way he used texture. Look at the way she used light. Look at the way he used perspective. I mean, you go to Michelangelo. If somebody's really a student of art, it's, it's why people could spend a day in front of David. I mean, it's just like, how did he do that? And it's like that with God on an infinite scale. How can I not worship a God when I understand something about I never did before? This is just amazing. Everybody should worship him. I mean, so it's when their mind is unlocked, their heart is open. That that would be my elevator speech
0: for mm-hmm. the intellectual. So, we've done the elevator pitch for all of these. How do you feel that understanding these different temperaments can foster more conversation and build community within this diverse group of understandings?
1: Well, awareness is a big part of it, and that's why I wrote Sacred Pathways. That's why I'm thrilled it's still out there, because it's helping us understand each other so that we can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's the healthy approach that Sacred Pathways represents, we can learn from each other. If I judge your pathway, I'm not learning
0: from you. Mm -hmm. And I'm selling myself short. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary, this has been incredible just hearing you talk about these and even for the art community and those listening to Makers and Mystics, understanding these different spiritual temperaments it really helps even understand the work that we're doing together in cultivating the art of listening. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us.
1: Thank you. I love talking about this stuff. So, thank you for giving me that opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Makers & Mystics Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers & Mystics and our community page at The Breath & The Clay. If you'd like to become a monthly patron of the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Mystics. We'll see you again next week, and until then, keep creating, the world needs your art.